The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. I think every doctor knows that notes could be better. And every doctor spends so much time doing notes and dictations. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call features an article that was printed online July 14th in the Annals of Internal Medicine titled Restoring the Story and Creating a Valuable Clinical Note. Joining me today is Dr. Heather Ganser. She is an internist who's in her 31st year of practice in primary care at Park Nicolette Clinic in Minneapolis. She works in the COVID-19 Discharge Telemedicine Clinic, and she also works as a nocturnist on the hospital service at Methodist Hospital several nights a month. She was the governor of the Minnesota chapter of the ACP class of 2015, and she now serves as the chair of the Board of Regents of the American College of Physicians, and she's the first author of this report from a very important task force. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Heather, thanks so much for uh, joining us on the podcast. I read your piece about restoring the story and was very excited. There was a whole task force of the American College of Physicians devoted to this. Could you tell me a little bit about that task force, uh, why it was put together, who, who's on it, and uh, what the goals are? The task force came about because at a Board of Regents meeting, I said, something needs to be done about notes. And Dr. Andy Dunn, who was the chair, said, how true, you'll start a committee. And so this is what happens when you speak up or complain about something. Somebody says, well, fix it. I think every doctor knows that notes could be better. And every doctor spends so much time during their workday, at the end of the workday, what's called pajama time, doing notes and dictations and typing and not feeling excitement or joy in the profession, but feeling like it's clerical work and envelope stuffing. And and we go, how did we come to this place? A lot of ways, uh, as you know, notes maybe 40, 50 years ago were jotted by hand. They were a few key features. They were for the doctor's own personal information. It was really at the Mayo Clinic in the early days when notes were developed more to be means of communication among multiple doctors and multiple specialists. And that was really where one chart for the patient really took off. Instead of each doctor keeping their own little personal notes to tweak their memory, there was one chart accompanying the patient here, there, to different departments. And this was a very positive development to help coordinate care. Medical legal issues crept in. We know the chart is the documentation of the care delivered. And and if legal questions come up, it's what's referred to. Especially billing requirements crept in. And as Medicare and subsequently many private payers who follow Medicare 
started to make rules about what the charge would be for each visit or for each service delivered in the hospital. The way of determining those charges was how many parts of the body were examined, how many different questions were asked, what was the complexity, how many labs were ordered, and how many tests, and the more the higher the charge, but these bullet points had to be met. Uh, The notes began to get longer and longer to test satisfy billing criteria. And then the electronic medical record came in and initially was designed for billing and doctor's notes needed to be contorted and twisted to fit that model. And so we end up with these very long notes with reams of information where it's hard to get the thread. The impetus for this was actually when CMS was talking about code collapse and saying they would not go by the length of the the note and that while reimbursement might go down per note, doctors would have less paperwork and be able to see more patients and it would not be a problem. And that was my impetus for this isn't going to help us if we don't change our notes. So the goal for changing the notes was to reduce unnecessary clerical work leading to physician burnout, and especially to increase the value of the note that we communicate who this person is, what their issue is, what is our thought process. So the task force, I I felt when Dr. Dunn charged us uh, with forming the task force, I felt it was uh, out of uh, Tolkien, and here we are, the fellowship of the ring. So we had a medical student, We had a critical care fellow. We had a geriatrician noted physician author. We had people in academics and in private practice and generalists and subspecialists. We had some ACPDC regulatory staff that knew the ins and outs of Medicare and coding and billing. And we had a patient advisor who has thoughtfully worked with patient groups and physician groups to facilitate understanding and keep the patient at the center of things. And she was an invaluable addition to the group. She would remind us with open notes and changes in the electronic record, patients are reading these notes too. They shouldn't be just jargon. They should be intelligible. She taught us the importance of the connotation of words reflecting respect. So we had a diverse task force and and everybody contributed in a different way. Well, I'll just tell you one or two anecdotes. I was at dinner about four or five years ago with a neurologist who is now retired. And I think he spent 15 minutes telling me how worthless notes are these days. But that's not the only such conversation I had. I mean, it was like, uh, maybe it's just a bunch of old guys and gals, but uh, it was like, these notes, you can't tell anything from the note. I'm one of those people who was taught uh, when I was a second year medical student the chief residents came in to teach us how to write notes, and they had just adopted the soap note from Larry Weed. So all the way through my training and early career, I would write subjective, objective, analysis, and plan for each of the problems. It wasn't for diagnoses, it was for problems. And that's the way I learned to think about patients. I still think about patients that way. But I had to be really good at the analysis. So when I was an intern, the residents would look and see what my analysis and plan was. They weren't quite as worried about how I recorded the subjective and objective data. I love the idea that you're using the word story because when we discuss patients with with each other, and we do that all the time, that's just part of being a physician, we're always telling a story. 
And I like that you have been able to articulate that telling the story is what we're trying to do with our notes. We really are, because that engages the reader and gives understanding instead of taking a lot of bits and pieces of data, labs, imaging studies, and throwing them in the air like confetti, letting it fall where they may, and saying, and then the patient was discharged. With the story, we feel there's a good balance of the narrative and then the objective and then the analysis, as you say. So we looked back at Dr. Weed's article that you referred to, and and it was just prescient, so relevant to today. But the thought is, with the story, we want to know, is this a 32-year-old female here with fever, cough, positive COVID test, was in the hospital with oxygen, got given steroids and remdesivir and discharged? And in that note, discharge summary, five pages of imaging studies and labs in no particular context? Or is it more helpful for the doctor following up this patient has been discharged to read, Jane Smith is a 32-year-old hairstylist, unemployed since March, who had friends visiting out of town the week of June 30, July 5, developed temp to 102, fever, cough, hesitated to come for medical care as she had lost her insurance, Three days later, more shortness of breath, COVID test positive, going on to give some relevant physical exam, describing her highest flow oxygen, but then describing on the the discharge, discussed isolation. She lives in an apartment, two bedrooms, two other roommates, one bathroom, none of them are COVID yet, discussing how the isolation goes, clarifying The reason she did not receive convalescent plasma, it is her strong religious belief to receive no blood products, and this affected her care. Just to give some context of who the human is, how this disease came to be and evolve and what social factors impacted it and what practical factors there are regarding finances and living quarters afterwards. It results in better care for the patient when you have that fuller story than random data not put in any context. I really love that. Um, One of the things that we do at our institution is we do clinical problem solving cases. And I have to present two cases to um, one of my colleagues next week. And as I was thinking about them, I pictured the person that I was telling the story about and in preparing it. So the first patient is a a 50-year-old executive secretary woman. This is from 1988. I saw her and she walks into the room uh, with a complaint of spells. She's a very prim and proper and speaks as a highly educated person. And so now you have a picture of who she is and it impacts how you tell the rest of the story. Uh, The other patient uh, was a man who was, uh, we saw in clinic after his discharge from the hospital. He was a a 63-year-old man who owned a bar, never drank at the bar because that was against the bar uh, owner's code, went to another bar to drink two six-packs a day of beer for 30 years, and came in with jaundice. So you have a picture of who these people are when you say that, and that's why, that's why I fell so in love with the article uh, that uh, you wrote. What do you think are the uh, barriers to uh, making this transition? And are there any barriers with CMS 
Because if CMS says okay, then everybody else will say okay. I think the biggest barriers are lack of knowledge about what the actual CMS rules are, uh, inertia. We're so busy wasting time, what I would consider wasting time and notes that are not really productive. We're so busy doing that. It can be hard to have some chance to step back and say, hey, wait, how can I stop doing that? So it's lack of knowledge about the changing CMS rules. It's being so busy, hard to step back and change the big picture. It's inertia, habit. For learners, I think so much is going to be pivotal on what does the second year resident do. When you follow your role models and you're imprinted with this is how you do things, it really gets set in the brain and there needs to be a a change at multiple levels at the practicing physician level, the fellow consultant level, the attending faculty, the teachers, the residents especially, all the way through the learning line. Um, The CMS rules that came in 2019 in many cases, eliminated bullet points allowing billing for time. And as you know, the proposed rule that became an actual rule in this past year and will go to an effect January 1 of 2021 will, for the outpatient ENM codes, allow strictly billing on time, the time not being only face to face with the patient, but the time spent reviewing the records that day, calling the out of town family, assembling the data. So I think knowing those criteria and how much can be time can let a person focus on the content of the note and worthwhile to step back and think about how one wishes to do their own notes and are there any institutional standards and if show how to readdress and change the institutional standards. Restoring the story was our original title of the article and we changed it to restoring the story and creating a valuable clinical note because the goal is not to go back to a mythic ideal time which never existed. And the goal is not only a a poetic narrative, it's getting the human content and context in there in a helpful narrative, but also using the tools of the present and the future, using the high-tech electronic tools that we have to the benefit and an intelligent way. Uh, One example is, when I admit someone to the hospital in the admit note, instead of just importing the entire long imaging study of the chest CTA, if I say in the note CTA significant for no pulmonary embolism, but a dense infiltrate right lower lobe, an incidental finding of a one centimeter nodule left upper lobe, see full report and electronic record. People can go back and look at the report, but in a minute they look and they get the gist, here's what mattered on that study, instead of having to wade through 50 or 60 lines. We can refer so much to what's already in the record without regurgitating it, coming down to the issue of analysis, you say, the two critical things being telling the patient's story and then analyzing what are the salient features, what is the differential diagnosis, what's the next step and what to do about it. There are one more question at you here, and this is my one of my personal pet peeves. I remember as an internal resident, a patient would be admitted with a fever and cough, and then we would do a differential. Now, unless something has changed, and you can tell me if something has changed, the patient has to be labeled with a diagnosis in order for utilization to say it's okay. And if we don't put, write down a diagnosis, and I really worry about diagnostic errors. 
if we tell the story as this is the problem, which is the way I was taught, the problem is fever and cough, and then I can do a differential based upon the data I have and my analysis of it. And then maybe two days later, I change that to um, a, a pleural effusion with pleuritic chest pain or pneumonia or possible fungal infection or tension pneumothorax, all of which might fit that story. That is telling the story of the patient and helping us fulfill that famous Osler quote, uh, the good patient treats the disease the great physician treats the uh, person who has the disease. And I'm hoping that somehow in in writing these uh, stories that we're able to focus on the complaints rather than a presumed diagnosis that just leads us in the wrong direction. Exactly. And initially, in the middle of the night, we do not have to have a diagnosis and a label to put on. We can put the symptoms, the symptom complex, the key features, and make a differential and, and uh, in the field of reducing diagnostic error, always on that differential is, and what else might it be? I think one impetus of pushing to prematurely labeling a patient with a diagnosis is then it makes treatment easier. You decide this fever and cough is community-acquired pneumonia, boom, you pull up the order set for that, you check off the boxes, makes order writing really easy. And I think that order sets are invaluable tools. We have absolutely seen that in COVID, invaluable. And there's a lot of, in the good order sets, education embedded, but not to be restricted to only using those valuable tools that come already and and are in a way safety, like the pilot with our checklists, but also to step back and say beyond this box, what other features might need attention? What else might be different? So you're right, it's really keeping an open mind. Heather, I'd like you to thank Andy Dunn for allowing you to have this task force. Please thank all the members of your task force because this is such great stuff. And uh, we look forward to uh, seeing how the American College Physicians and the task force helps bring this concept stronger and stronger into medical education and into practice and maybe we'll have notes that you can look at and understand what the physician is thinking about and who the patient is, and wouldn't that be wonderful? Well, we hope that the 163,000 members of the American College of Physicians will share their thoughts on how to make this even better and how to implement it. There's the Twitter hashtag ReclaimClinicalNotes, and we look forward to other people's ideas. Thanks so much for having me here today. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. Communication represents the ideal for clinical notes. We should be able to read a colleague's note and both know something about the person as well as know the active problems and what our colleague is doing and thinking. Extraneous data and other data in the chart need not be included in an informative note. They can be linked to. This task force has given solid recommendations to make the note readable and valuable to the patient and one's colleagues. I applaud the work of this task force and hope that they can be successful in transforming clinical notes to the proper communication tool that they should represent. Thank you for listening to Annals on Call.
For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participants' statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.